In terms of being an entrepreneur, what you need above all else, in my opinion, is perseverance. Mm -hmm. Because it's hard. Anybody who conveys the idea that it's easy and you've got this, you know, rocket ship to the stars of wealth and celebrity, that's so, so rare. And you need to know that it's not easy. You're going to face challenges. And what's going to separate you from someone who gives up is that perseverance. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and joining me today is film producer, director, playwright, and entrepreneur Jeffrey Madoff. Jeff is the founder of top-rated New York City video production company, Madoff Productions, and author of Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. Jeff has edited and directed award-winning commercials, documentaries, and web content around the world for clients such as Ralph Lauren, Tiffany, Radio City, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and Harvard University. Today, I had the chance to sit down and talk with him about lessons learned and his latest projects. Well, Jeff, thank you for joining me today on InFactor. Well, thank you, Rebecca, for inviting me. Yeah. So I've gotten to know you just a little bit in a few conversations here before we got started today and previously, and I'm really intrigued by everything that you've been doing. And I'd really love for you to take our listeners through a little bit of a journey to kind of get everybody caught up. Talk to us about your background, where you come from, what you're doing right now. And then we're going to dive into a little bit more of some of the specifics of your business and of the books that you're writing. I was born and raised in Akron, Ohio, and that was a great place to grow up and leave. And I have nothing but fond memories of it. And I still have very dear friends from my childhood who live in Akron and, you know, who I visit. My -hmm. parents are gone, but it was a great place. And then I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I had a double major in philosophy and psychology and was on the wrestling team. So that was a great preparation for heading into the business <laughs> world. And I started my first business in Madison and then eventually moved to New York City and have been living in New York City ever since. And, you know, I've had a few different moves and transitions in, in my professional life. So you started in the fashion industry, right? Was that kind of your intro into business or did you have other kinds of businesses before you moved into fashion and then video production and theater and all the other things that you're doing? Well, you know, as a kid, I had a variety of things, you know, when it snowed, that was an opportunity, you know, to be an entrepreneur. uh, Up north for sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, my friend and I would go door to door and shovel driveways and sidewalks. So that was great. But that's regular kid stuff. You know, mowed lawns in the summer. Had a job that I guess is extinct now, but I had a paper route. Uh (laughs) You know, those don't exist anymore. That's right. And, you know, set tombstones and was a fuller brush man selling door to door, which interestingly was incredibly good training. 
because going door to door is like cold calling for right. sales. So you had to, bam, engage somebody really quickly before they close the door in your face and try to sell them something. So I actually learned a lot from that that informed my later life. Even when I got a job in a store, it was a shoe salesman mm-hmm. and talked myself into that job. None of those were going to be careers, but I did start my first adult career when I was 21, which happened totally by accident. So what? tell us the story. I got to hear that one. How did that happen? And tell us about that business. I was working in a small boutique in Madison and a dear friend of mine that I grew up with called me up and he said, hey, I've saved some money. Can you think of something that would earn more than bank interest? Hmm. And I said, well, I see the clothes that we sell and I could always draw. So I said, I'll start a clothing company. And he sent me a check. And at that time, that was the most money I ever had at one time. Now, Rebecca, hold on to your seat. I'll tell you how much money it was. (laughs) You know, it is somewhere neither one of us can remember for sure because it was a long time ago. But it was either $1,500 or $2,500. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know if that was a lot. It seemed like a lot to me, but, you know, I didn't know anything. So that's why it seemed like a lot to me. Right. So you started this business on $1,500, $2,500, something in that neighborhood that someone, so you said you described this person as a friend. Was this someone that had been a mentor to you or that was older and more experienced? Or was it somebody that was, you know, they'd seen a promise in you or was it, was it just kind of somebody that you knew and just happened to say, Hey, let's do something. I want, I got this money. I want to make it more. And I think you can do it. He was a lot older than me, Uh five, five months. Uh, (laughs) Okay. uh, His mom and my mom grew up together and were dear friends. And his name's Kenny Merriman. I don't remember not knowing him. You know, we were literally crawling on the floor together. Uh So he was just a dear friend, still is. And, you know, it was as simple as I've saved up some money. Can you think of anything? And there was trust. Right. Now, did he, was he engaged in building the company with you or did he just turn his money over to you and say, you know, do something with it and, and you being who you are, figured out how to do it. Starting a clothing company sounds like a really tough first business to have. Well, as the saying goes, ignorance is bliss. Now, fortunately, although ignorant, which I certainly was, I wasn't stupid. And the difference is ignorance, you can learn stupids forever. Uh Uh And, you know, I really was naive. I didn't know anything. I took a shirt that I liked the fit of and cut it apart so I could see how a shirt was constructed. What are the puzzle pieces that do Uh that? Some of the people that did alterations for the store, I gave them some drawings and picked out fabrics and they made some garments for me. Uh But to give you an idea of how horribly naive I was, when I went to the store and saw fabric on the bolt, I thought that that was wholesale because it Uh hadn't been made into anything yet. Uh So, you know, I really didn't know what I was doing. Now, for that store, I was a buyer and my parents had retail stores. So I had a 
certain knowledge of business, pretty mm-hmm. fundamental, but that basic knowledge, which serves me well, is you need to sell something for more than it costs you to make it. Right. right. <laughs> you know, and a lot of people lose sight of that, you know. Yeah. And so I had to learn how to cost out a garment and all that. But initially I was really green. But what happened was, you know, I made like 18 pieces, put them in the store where I worked, sold mm-hmm. out immediately. Hmm. Had more made, sold out immediately. And I thought, didn't use these terms at that time, but thought proof of concept. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just me that likes the idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a product that people bought and bought quickly. So I strapped my suitcase with a sample line onto the back of my motorcycle, drove to Chicago from Madison, went to 18 stores and sold, I think, 14 or 15 of them. All of a sudden had about $55,000 in orders Mm -hmm. and was walking around the Chicago Merchandise Mart looking at fabrics because I tracked down from those bolts I bought from what, what fabric manufacturer had them and if they had a sales office in Chicago. And a lot of people didn't want to do business with me, you know, because I was a kid. And back then, kids weren't doing startups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the ones that wouldn't do business with me kind of did me a favor in the sense that it allowed me to focus on those who would and met some very good, kind people who thought it was kind of novel and interesting that a kid was starting a company like that. And I calculated from one of these places that, you know, I needed a couple thousand yards of fabric. And he said, do you have a contractor? I said, maybe. What's a contractor? (laughs) And he said, somebody to manufacture your clothing. Where am I going to ship this? And I said, I don't. And he said, let me make a call for you. And he called this guy, Jerry Berger, who had a factory in Montello, Wisconsin, And he agreed to meet with me and I motorcycled to Montello and Jerry standing there with a cigarette hanging from his lower lip. And when I showed up and at that time, my hair was down to my shoulders, you know, wearing a black leather jacket and jeans and boots because I'd ridden my motorcycle in. And to him, I was quite a sight. And he said, so you you brought your samples with you? I said, yeah. He said, well, bring them in. So I go in and open up the sample case and I'm holding up some of the clothes and then he takes it and he looks at the inside and how it was made. And he said, you actually sold this crap? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, what kind of orders you got? And I told him, he said, you sold this crap and you got $55,000 worth of orders on this? I said, yeah. He said, well, with me making your clothes, you're going to make a million dollars. And he was a great guy who I learned a lot from, and we became good friends. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to meet some wonderful people who helped me. Mm -hmm. And along the way, you also meet people that not only don't help you, will take advantage of the naivete that you have. I met that too. But fortunately, you know, you learn and you quickly learn the signs and the patterns of how to screen those people out. But I was very lucky that I met him early because he was a big help to me. Yeah. So let's talk just a little bit about that business because I'm very intrigued. What was it? 
What do you think? Well, two questions. What do you think made your products different or interesting to the customers? Was it your ability to sell them or were they, you know, was it the design? I'm sure you've spent some time figuring that out. And secondly, the fashion industry and clothing has always been dominated by some really big players, hasn't it? And was it hard to break into that from a distribution and sales perspective, even after you figured out how to get a manufacturer to take you on and produce your products? So there's a few things to unpack there, Rebecca. For one thing, at that time, it was the beginning. And I was one of the people that coined the term when I was interviewed by Women's Wear Daily, which at the time was the publication for women's fashion. Well, tell me, tell us about the time frame. So this is, so I started the company in like 1971. Okay. And, you know, there weren't young people doing startups and fashion though had been impacted by what happened in the sixties and started with Carnaby Street in London and worked its way to the United States. Rock music became huge for kids. Mm-hmm. And no longer did kids want to dress like their parents, you know? And so there was a big gap between what you wore to school when you were in high school and then what you wore out in your first job after you graduated from college. And so when I was interviewed by Women's Wear Daily, they said, well, who do you design for? And I said, the contemporary market, my contemporaries. And it became called the contemporary market. I'm sure I'm not the only one that said that, but I was quoted in women's wear saying that. Mm -hmm. And so I think to answer your question about why did they buy it, Ralph Lauren said to me, you know, when I asked him, how did you for so many decades key in on what the consumer wanted? And he said, well, I knew what the consumer wanted because I am the consumer. And so what I did, and this was before I met Ralph, and that's why he and I got along so well, is I understood that. And Mm -hmm. I understood the difference between trying to second guess what people want or having the confidence that if you like something, somebody else is going to like it too. And so the designs were cool. And it was happening at a time where the major department stores, which were a force in that time, they're not nearly as much now. And there were lots of independent boutiques that were on the cutting edge of fashion. And those stores, those boutiques bought the stuff quickly because their whole reason for being was having unique offerings. And the department stores would shop those boutiques and see what the lines of clothing were that they were carrying. And then they would call people like myself and other independent small fashion companies to buy their clothes. So the timing actually was very fortunate because it was much more open to innovation or as they might call it these days, disruption. Mm -hmm. And they learned from these independent retailers who were taking a chance on young designers and the exploding market that was happening at the same time. Very interesting. And and I do remember that time. And you know, it's interesting because now a lot of our, you know, a lot of our students at our university, and I know you also teach there in New York at New School and work with a lot of design students. A lot of our students want to do the same. What do you think? Has the industry changed a lot? They want to design clothing and other accessories for their contemporaries. What's it like today to try to do what you did back in 1971 and and the few years following that? On certain levels, well, we're in a uniquely 
challenged time right now with COVID. Sure. But the fashion industry, even pre-COVID, stores were closing and brick and mortar was being heavily challenged by online selling. And then when COVID came and people couldn't even go into stores and their cash flow just was wiped out, that made a big difference. Well, when I started out, online selling didn't exist. And so you had to get into stores. And again, at that time, I happened to be able to take advantage of an explosion of newness in fashion that had never happened before. I think for students now, the price of entry is lower because you can go online, you can set up a website, and you can transact direct to consumer. And direct to consumer appears to be the way fashion is going. Because if you sell to a store, which then marks you up, there's no reason not to try to do it yourself, other than the fact that those stores already have an established customer base and you don't. So you have to be smart about how you use social media to market yourself and using different kinds of methods of advertising, whether you use Facebook ads or whatever to really target who you're going after, using Instagram as a marketing platform. You know, people always ask me about social media. It's not social media. That's a misnomer. It's corporate media. And it's used for advertising and marketing. You want to post pictures of your dog and what you had for lunch and your boyfriend or girlfriend, that's fine. But the way those things keep going is they sell information about the consumers to advertisers. Right. And that's how they, how they make money. And that's why I call it corporate media, because that's what it is. But Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, all of these can be used very effectively. TikTok now, you know, all of these can be used very effectively as marketing vehicles. The challenge is there's lots of noise out there. So how do you rise above the noise? And that's where creativity comes in. And what I think is the biggest component for success comes in. And that's perseverance. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. And there is nothing that's easy. Between the time that I started and now, there's so much product out there. So the only way products really become distinctive is having a great brand image story and strategy. Now, when you were doing this back in the early 70s, how did you build your brand and how did you distribute your product at that time? A little different than from now, but you know, what did you do? And are there some lessons from that that you think apply today still? Some, yeah, because I think that, you know, nothing is new. And even with what's online, In online retailing, the main thing that online can offer is convenience. You can shop from home. You know, initially, online was challenged because people didn't want to put their credit card information online. Mm -hmm. Well, we've crossed that hurdle, right? And when you're online, you don't have the geographic limitations that you do when you have brick and mortar. And you can also have a much deeper selection of things online, which always isn't the best idea when you're starting business. It's better to refine your look and be smart about what you're offering and make it so that you can actually manufacture and deliver. Because if you don't do that, you're done. So I think that the things that I learned back then, there were trade shows. 
So there would be the national boutique show, the menswear show, the women's wear show. So there would be these things where buyers would go through these hotels. You'd have your wares out there, a room all trimmed out, however nicely you could. And they would come in and write orders. And I had sales reps who also went to the stores in their territories and wrote orders. So the protocol was the same. You had to make connections with the people that were buying the stuff, get it in front of them and have them purchase it. It's just that now you reach them in a different way. You may not go to a trade show, but you might spend what you would have spent on a trade show on Facebook ads to get it in front of people. You know, so it's just, again, having this strategy because you still have to reach the buyer and you have to be clever about how you do it. And you have to distinguish yourself from all the others in your category. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I do in my class, as I said, I want you to go look at khaki pants and you can find khaki pants anywhere from $20 to $900. At a certain point, I defy you to tell me the difference between the ones that are 125 and 250, you know, because what happens is a brand begins to take over. If you see the Ralph Lauren logo on it, if you see Gucci on it, if you see Prada on it or Bruno Cuccinelli, you're assuming a higher quality. Oftentimes you're right to, but a lot of times you're not right to. But because there's so much product, the only thing that really distinguishes them, if you took the logos and labels out, is it's a commodity. How much does it cost? And you're not going to get premium dollar for something unless you have a strong brand image, therefore there's the perception that it's worth more. So basically creatives need to have some some knowledge of business because at the end of the day, they've got to brand and market and sell what they're doing, right? Absolutely. And, And the role of the designer has changed. You know, designers for the past 10 years at least have had to become marketers creative directors for the advertising, being much more involved in not just the creation of the clothing, but the creation of the brand image and the communicator of that brand Mm -hmm. image. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that's not just in fashion. I mean, what separated Apple was Steve Jobs was a tremendous brand steward, Mm -hmm. you know, and what a great brand does is establish an emotional connection to the consumer. So, you know, nobody's excited about buying a Dell computer. It may be just as good at doing what it needs to do, but Apple has such a dedicated following. It's almost like a cult. Well, and that's why they called them evangelists, right? Apple evangelists. That's right. (laughs) So they understood that. And there's many other examples we could talk about of that sort of thing. So I have to ask you, what happened to that company? Were you able to give your friend his money back and a little bit more? Later on, yes. What had happened was that my primary, I had to find financial backing pretty quickly because my mm-hmm. company was- Because $2,500 just didn't do it, right? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. So strange as it may seem, it did not. And so my business was doubling every three or four months. So I had to find financial backing. And I did, a very good man who was a lawyer and he was fifth generation Wisconsinite and he owned five banks. And 
he was a really good person, found me interesting, but what he found most interesting was that the 120 employees I had banked at his banks. And he made it clear from the beginning that, you know, he would continue to back me because of that. Mm -hmm. I hit a point where there was a recession going on. It was taking stores who are normally net 30, which meant they usually paid in 45 days or so. They were taking 90 to 120 days and beyond. Many went out of business. I wanted to move to New York. I wanted to be in the flow of the fashion industry here. And mainly, I just found New York so exciting and seductive and compelling. I wanted to be here. And he told me, if you move, I'm not going to continue to back the business. And he had told me that at the beginning, you know, but I had never thought about moving to New York earlier on. Mm -hmm. So I had to make a very big decision quite young, which is, do I shut down the business, risk looking like I failed at quite a young age, or do I make that move and start over again? Or do I just stay? Well, I didn't want to stay because that wasn't interesting to me. And I figured that money comes and goes, time only goes. So I made the decision to take the leap, close the business, and move to New York. So what did you do after you moved to New York? I had saved up enough money. If I lived modestly, which I did, I could travel, which I did. I went to, you know, around Europe and did that. And I lived 11 different places. I, you know, house sat, you know, there were ads for people who would be apartment sitters. And so you get free rent for the month that the, whoever owned the place was gone and all of that. So I did that. And when I ran out of money, I had been approached by somebody who I knew before from my previous business. And I had a good reputation. My stuff sold. So we started a new company and built up that company. And then I sold that company. So I realized that I kind of knew how to do the business, but it no longer had the allure to me. I wanted to do something else and used what I believed was my creativity. I wanted to use it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Is that when you went into the video production? That's right. Business. Okay. So let me back up just a minute. So you moved to New York, which with New York be considered the fashion mecca for the United States? Yes. So you were able to probably connect with some pretty big names. You mentioned Ralph Lauren and others. So that probably helped advance what you were doing as well. And so you sold your company. And after you sold your company, you then decided to move into video production. And did the, the work that you did in the fashion industry help you there? Were you connected into network that enabled you to do that? Or was it like starting over with something completely different, a whole new network? How did that work? So a few things. First of all, I didn't know Ralph Lauren then, and I didn't know any of the people in the fashion industry. My contact had been with retailers not other designers, because I was in. there were no other designers in Wisconsin. And when you come in for the trade shows, you're not meeting other designers. Mm-hmm. So I met Ralph and Halston and the people that I worked with. I met them when I started into doing the video and film production. Interesting. So, so that's how I met them. So 
when I started this clothing company and then transitioned out of that selling the company into doing film and video, you asked if that informed what I did and very much so. And it, I think it might be good to your listeners to understand why did that inform it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I think that everything you do, if your eyes are open, informs everything else that you do. And what I mean by that is when I designed a line of clothing, it would start with an idea. I'd sketch out the idea. I'd find, you know, the materials I wanted to make it with. The labor would be costed out. The time it would take would be costed out. The shipping costs, everything else. And then it had to be delivered by a deadline. And then I also ultimately had to collect money and start the process over again. But when I got into film, it starts with an idea. You sketch out that idea. Those are the storyboards or you write a treatment. You have to cost out the materials, the equipment, the labor. How long is it going to take you to do it? How much can you sell it for? And when you have to deliver it by. And I believe whether you are a fashion designer, a filmmaker, an author, or a dentist, or have a hardware store, those protocols in business are essentially all the same. You don't have to sketch anything when you're in those businesses, but you do have to have an idea. You do have to know what your materials cost, what your overhead is. All of those protocols of businesses and best practices are the same. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that becomes mystifying about business and it's not mystifying at all. You have to look beyond the vocabulary and look at what do you actually have to do? You got to add up a bunch of numbers. You got to figure out what it costs you to make. How long is it going to take you to make it? How quickly can you ship it out? And how quickly can you get paid? You know, and that's right. in everything. So we had an earlier discussion a month or so ago. And one of the reasons I was excited to connect with you and hear more about your story is you've just written a book, Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. So it sounds like to me that through these experiences, a couple of fashion design and manufacture selling businesses, a video production business, and I know you're doing some other things, you've figured out some creative, some principles of business that can help others. And I know you've been teaching as well. So could you talk us talk to us a little bit about that book? I think it was just released, right? In June of this year, maybe. That's right. And yeah. So I think it, you know, as I told you before at, at the University of Tampa, we have a number of students from film and video and and from the arts that are going to be out there, you know, working, and many of them are going to need business skills. And so this book sounded really exciting to me as something, a reference, and maybe even a book I could use in class to help them think about how to turn their ideas into something, you know, a business basically, and something productive financially for them. So could you tell us a little about your book? Sure. I teach a class by the same name, Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas at Parsons School for Design in New York. And I have students in there, not just fashion designers, photographers, journalists, architects, all kinds of different things. And I had made it a practice from the beginning. And I'm starting my, this fall starts my 14th year teaching, where I have a different guest every week. But one week I might have an astronaut and the next week, I might have somebody who wrote a book, or I did have somebody who wrote a book 
on FOMO, fear of missing out, which all hmm. the college students know about. And then the next week, which was this past week, I had Vanessa Friedman, who's the fashion critic for the New York Times. And I have a very, very eclectic mix of people. I learn along with the students. That's why I love teaching. It's a great way to learn. And being exposed to all these different and diverse kinds of ideas and to hear how they did what they do. The book takes those things. And in the book, it features people like Damon John, who's a Shark Tank star, Michael Arad, who designed the World Trade Memorial. You know, how often do you get to sit with somebody? I said to the students before he got there, this is like talking to the person that designed the Lincoln Memorial. You know, this is going to be there way beyond our lifetimes. And you're going to meet the person and get his creative ideas and all the other challenges and obstacles he made and had to overcome in order to create this magnificent memorial in Lower Manhattan. But then I'll have Roy Wood Jr., the senior black correspondent for The Daily Show, who's a terrific comedian and approaches his work just like what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's a very wide mix of people. But I think one of the, and it's embedded in my narrative and my life history on all this stuff, but you hear different points of view. And I think it's enriching to hear different points of view about different challenges that you meet because I don't really believe in recipes for success. I call that the myth of replication. Mm -hmm. You can't do what somebody else did and therefore expect the same outcome. Mm -hmm. That's not how life works. So I think it's really important to be able to hear from a range of really smart people and what did they do? And then what resonates with you in terms of how they had to cope with making a living with their ideas and how they accomplished it. But I think an important thing is also, I think there's some questions that everybody needs to ask themselves before they start off on that entrepreneurial path. Well, you know, you and I have the same philosophy, I think, about learning and the value of storytelling, because that's one of the reasons I started this podcast. And I have such a wide variety of guests because from all stages of the entrepreneurial journey, because I think storytelling is so powerful as a learning tool. Absolutely. I love the format of your book and the way that you teach your class. So what if you were going to give, and you don't believe in prescription, but I guess what are some of the themes that you've learned? And I like your philosophy about learning too. I think learning is a big part of the entrepreneurial mindset, people that are interested and curious and want to learn. So what have you learned through your own journey and through these stories? What are some of the things you've learned about um, some of the unique challenges maybe that creatives have, people who have, you know, who like you have a very creative approach to the way that they live their lives and think about the world. I've learned a lot and I'm still learning. And one of the fundamental questions I think is how do you even define creativity? What is creativity? And I think that there is a false dichotomy between business and creativity, that somehow if you're creative, you don't know business. And if you're in business, you don't know anything about creative and it's almost adversarial when the suits show up, you know, Mm -hmm. that sort of Mm -hmm. a thing. And my belief is that entrepreneurship is a creative act because you're starting with an idea and then you're trying to actualize that idea into a real thing. And that thing is the business. 
So, you know, if you were a dentist and you came up with some quick, effective, inexpensive tooth whitening procedure, I mean, to me, on one hand, it doesn't sound so interesting, but it could be a very successful business. And that started with an idea and then actualizing that idea and going through the materials to find out what worked, what didn't work, getting your proof of concept. It's all the same stuff. So, you know, it was interesting in selling my book, my agent spoke to one of the primary business publishers and their response was, why would business people care about creativity? Next publisher they went to was one of the biggest self-help publishers because creativity, I guess, falls under self-help. I have no idea why, but it does. Okay. And their response was, why would creative people want to know anything about business? And I'm thinking, man, they just don't get it. That's surprising. (laughs) Uh, And then Hachette, who published the book, they wanted to meet with me. And their first response was, we love the way that business and creativity were hand in glove because we think that that's not talked about enough. And then we're fed these myths like, oh, I'm a right brain person. I'm creative and spatial and, oh, I'm a left brain person. I'm very organized and logical. And those were done by Dr. Roger Sperry. There were tests that were done, experiments that were done in the late 60s and 70s about the bicameral nature of the brain and left and right brain thinking. And he won the Nobel Prize for that. But then when brain mapping became more sophisticated, what was realized is that there's a tremendous amount of crosstalk between the hemispheres in the brain that you cannot attribute those traits of creativity, of savvy business, having all that to left or right. If you took a dry cleaner's brain and Rembrandt's brain and mapped the electrical activity, there's lots of stuff going on between the two. But people still think that that's a true statement. And, you know, you hear people say, I'm right-brained and I'm just not good at business. And that's buying into a myth. And I think it's really important when you're starting out, don't disqualify yourself. And I would say it goes the other way because I've heard from business students that I'm not creative and they make an assumption that they don't have and can't or can't even develop, you know, a process and the skill set around being creative. So they create these unnecessary assumptions about themselves that limit these unnecessary limitations, really. Absolutely. For themselves. Yeah. And you're going to find out if you go into business, there's enough people out there that will say no to you. So don't say no to yourself. Self, yeah. Yeah. Go I love it. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great advice. So right now you're doing a lot of really fun and exciting things. I, th- I mean, you've, you don't stay bored <laughs> or stay. I know you're always into something new. So tell us a little bit about you know, what's happening with the video production company and what are some of the new things that you're doing? You know, you've got the book published now. What's next? What are you up to these days? I want to touch on one thing before that in your sure. question when you talked about, you know, because we all know people that say, oh, I'm bored. And I find that like a phenomenally annoying way to be, (laughs) you know, if you're bored, don't tell me about it because you're going to bore me. You know, it's up to you. It's up to you to make your life interesting. Yeah. It's nobody's obligation to do that for you. 
And so I think that it's really important in terms of thinking about who you are and what you do. And, you know, we've all heard that kind of thing. Oh, I'm bored. And it's, I think that's not only so negative, it's like putting the responsibility elsewhere to keep you stimulated, where you need to do that yourself. Sure. And, you know, the the cool thing about entrepreneurship, what you said earlier about it being about being something creative is that everybody starts with pretty much a blank slate. And it's, or it's just like the blank canvas. It's just like, I have my students read an excerpt from Twala Tharp's book. Creative Habit. Yes. And she talks about the, you know, walking into the room and it's four walls and she has to, you know, choreograph the dance, pick the music, pick the people. And so it's, you know, that goes back to the whole boredom thing. How can you be bored when there's so many blank slates out there? If you have an entrepreneurial mindset, right? That's what I think that's all about. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, because if your antenna is up, what you're always searching for is opportunity. And if you're creative and consider yourself creative, I believe that creativity, the way that I define it, is the compelling need to bring about change. Mm -hmm. So when you walk into that room with the four blank walls, you want to fill it with the expression that you want to get out there. In Twyla's case, it's about dance and it's about movement and it's about the sounds and all of those things. And it's really a wonderful position to be in, to have that at your command. And, you know, I wanted to add that in terms of being an entrepreneur, what you need above all else, in my opinion, is perseverance mm-hmm. because it's hard. Anybody who conveys the idea that it's easy and you've got this, you know, rocket ship to the stars of wealth and celebrity, that's so, so rare. And you need to know that it's not easy. You're going to face challenges. And what's going to separate you from someone who gives up is that perseverance. Mm-hmm. And perseverance is critical. It's great advice. So what are you up to these days? So, you know, I'm teaching the class, as you know, which I love doing. I'm doing, and here we are, actually, this is very meta because I'm doing it now. You know, I'm doing podcasts to Mm -hmm. promote my book and get ideas out there and hopefully start fruitful discussions among people. The play that I've written, it's called Personality, the Lloyd Price musical, and it's the story of Lloyd Price, who was a pioneer in rock and roll and who broke down the wall that was called race music back in the 50s, where if you wanted to buy a record by a black artist, you had to go to a black record store. And what he discovered is nobody is prejudiced against green. And when his first song was the first song to ever sell over a million copies, it started what we call rock and roll. Lloyd's song, Laudie Miss Claudia, was a cornerstone rock and roll song and served as building the foundation. And what's really cool about his life is it took place at the crossroads of the youth movement, the civil rights movement, and the birth of rock and roll. And it's a very rich story. And I've loved telling it. And we were set to open in April of 21, as you mentioned, and we're 
moving to February of 22. Mm-hmm. But yeah. tomorrow I have a meeting with our set designer and director. And so there's things going on with that, you know, all the time. And I love doing that. And then my business I'm taking in a, another direction. And that's exciting. We've been doing some things, positioning brand stories for companies and telling their brand story, not what font do you use and what's your color palette, but truly what is the story? What are the values that you represent? Because every company now, you know, before we you started recording, we talked about we're unfortunately in a very divided time, mm-hmm. but every business is in the trust business because nobody wants to do business with people they don't trust. And people nowadays want to know who's behind the companies that they are buying from. And so telling that story is something that's really interesting to me. And I've just done it for two companies that had been positioned for sale. And I was asked to come in and articulate with video their brand story. And I want to do more of that. It's interesting work. And I love doing fashion and that's great fun, but I also always crave difference Mm -hmm. doing something I hadn't done before. Mm -hmm. That goes back to your desire to learn and your curiosity. And I think your entrepreneurial mindset, you know, your branding videos are fascinating and it's really interesting to hear you talk about trust. I did a study a few years back with one of my colleagues and we looked at Dan Goldman's emotional intelligence and entrepreneurs and the number one the number one attribute that entrepreneurs mentioned was trust that being the you know the most important thing in terms of you know being an entrepreneur and being successful and i agree with you about perseverance but among those emotional intelligence traits trust was very high on the table and i think you're right it's a really challenging time right now because we're socially distancing we're wearing masks we're there's a lot going on in the world and a lot of divisiveness. And so it's very interesting. And I'm excited to hear that you're doing that. You know, creating a brand is about creating an emotional attachment, right? And set to your customer, but thinking about it from a trust perspective too. Very interesting. So I'm excited. I'm excited to see your, your play when the theaters open back up. I look forward to that. I've missed coming to New York. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm excited to watch the success of your book and everything that you've been working on. It's really phenomenal, Jeff. And what a journey you've been on. And I know there's still more to come. So that's really exciting. And I hope there's more to come. <laughs> <laughs> of course there is. There's always more. There, there's always another blank slate. You know, I could talk more longer, but I know you've got things to do. And I just, I wanted to wrap up with a couple of questions. One, you may have already answered for me. I kind of think I know what you might say, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because I always ask everybody that is on the show, if you had one piece of advice to share with our listeners, knowing that it's typically aspiring entrepreneurs and practicing entrepreneurs, what would that be? Stay curious, keep learning, and understand that the entrepreneur's journey is not easy. It takes work, but know why you're doing it. Because if you understand your motivation, that can help you through the difficult times and help you to persevere. Yeah. Great advice. How can our listeners find your book and find you and learn more about everything that you're doing? How can they find you? For my video work, you can look at 
the website, Madoff, M-A-D-O-F-F, productions.com, the Creative Careers website, where you can see clips from our guests and hear quotes from them about entrepreneurship and success and challenges and all that, is a creativecareer.com. And the Instagram site for that, where it's shorter quotes, is at acreativecareer.com. And I'm on LinkedIn, B. Jeffrey Madoff. I started a group there, a creative careers group. So those are the ways to follow me. And the book is available at Amazon and all fine booksellers, Audible and Apple and Barnes and Noble and so on. Wonderful. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. I know a lot of our listeners are going to want to check those out. And I'm excited to read the book myself. I haven't had the chance to do that. I'm looking forward to it and hopefully incorporating it into the libraries of some of my students as well. That's great. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation, Rebecca. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely.